Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice and this is an interview with Bella Lee. If you don't know Bella's work, she's the author of the books Argosy, which came out in 2017 from Vagabond. That book won both the Victorian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards for Poetry, which is pretty incredible. Bella followed that up with a book called Lost Lake. And in this interview, I get to put my hands on proofs of her new book, which is really, really exciting. That happens at the end of the episode. So Bella's work is, I want to start out by saying quite different to what you would expect from a poetry collection. But as we discuss in this interview, she's actually working as part of a tradition and a lineage. But what you would notice the first time you pick up one of these books is that a lot of the poems are visual. I feel like just explaining them like that as visual poems really does them a disservice. There's more going on there. But basically, Bella uses collage. She uses found material to create images that work with the actual text in the book. So we talk in this interview about why Bella does that, why she works the way she does. Uh, early in the interview, I should note that Meg the cat makes a appearance on the mic. This is part of the pleasures of getting to interview someone in person again. It's just so good to just sit with people in their space. We talk about how Bella's work points to absence and gaps. And then we get into her actual relationship to poetry and genre, which as you might expect has a bunch of different layers to it. We talk about what it means to use material that's already there. And we get into all the threads, all the connections between Bella's work and other work, including movies, other poets, other writers. There's a lot here as always. And yeah, I'm just really excited to be able to share another in-person interview with you from a very, very rainy afternoon in Melbourne. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Where I've been starting interviews this year is just by asking, how are you? (laughs) It's a very good question, a very caring question. Um, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've just started a full-time job, um, last week. So I feel physically like I've been run over by a bus. Um, but I think that's normal because, and I I knew to expect it because I've worked full-time before and I know every time I come back to it after a period of not working full-time, it just takes your body, um, just time to adjust Mm -hmm. to that new routine. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel very tired. I fell asleep at like 8.30 on Thursday night and, um, have been napping today, but yeah, otherwise it's, it's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's good at the moment and in general, I suppose, to have a permanent full-time job, which is, um, what, what I have now. And, uh, I was a little bit sad about leaving uni. Because I've been there for so long, I think it was something like 13 and a half or 14 years of either studying or teaching there. This is at University of Melbourne? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I was speaking to um, a friend of mine 
there and he was like yeah it's like the university is a home yeah and it's um really hard to leave but it's also good to leave your home I think and well you probably wouldn't have lived in houses for that long necessarily as an adult like 13 years yeah 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 so um yeah and I, I guess just and I st- you know I still am in contact with people there and um, I still get the like weekly newsletter from the school um so you feel vaguely still in touch but yeah I, th- I think it's a good time to be doing something different mm, yeah. yeah and you're on the other side of submitting a PhD which is kind of incredible yes how does that feel it feels really good it feels really good because <laughs> not gonna mince words it's great yeah it's it's really good because the last six months in particular and I think everyone has a similar or most people have a similar experience um is really like uh, it feels it feels endless mm. um I thought I would submit six months earlier than I did um, I think most people do yeah have that yeah I think I think most people just have an idea of how long it's going to take and then it's just it's always longer and Mm. often much longer Mm. yeah Mm. and I felt the same with every um maybe not every creative piece but every book certainly has always just I I um yeah the 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 last couple um I particularly lost like because that was incredibly uh tied to particular deadlines and I had said to Michael, oh, I will definitely have it done by this date. And um, I remember on that date, finishing the manuscript and feeling like, great, I hit this deadline. And then um, and I was in Finland at the time um, at this residency. And then I came home and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, this is not done. <laughs> this is not done. And it took another, I think, two months of really intensive work to get from when I thought it was done to when it was actually done. What was the... What was the difference between the two, the finished products? Like, what were you seeing on that first deadline that you weren't happy with? Um, how it worked together as a whole. Right. So, and like, sequencing? Yeah, sequencing. It was also... I mean, I also hadn't done um, the actual design. Mm-hmm. So, I had kind of mocked it all up together. But um, And also, I mean... Th- Lost Lake was a bit of an odd one because it was never intended to be a bound single volume Um, and it was never really supposed to be this cohesive, like conceptually cohesive um, work. I Mm -hmm. had planned for it to be, because there are eight sequences, um, eight separate chapbooks in a slipcase. I was going to steal Anne Carson's idea. Oh, that also would have been beautiful, but it is, you know, I have it here. It's absolutely gorgeous. So both both versions good. Well, interestingly, in the so I was um, we didn't actually know which one we were going to go with because mm. we were trying to figure it out with the printer as we went along. And so, at a certain point, I had like four different versions of the book. Whoa! And every time I made a change, I had to go into every file and make the same change. Oh, shudder! Oh, it was yeah, yeah, all the way up until when it went to print. Um, and so yeah, that last phase was very. Um, very strange because I had I had four possibilities of what it would be mm-hmm. um, and the possibility we ended up going the, the version we ended up going with was really due to practical factors yeah yeah um, and I was a little bit 
sad um but then then it came out and I saw it and now I don't know if it's just because I got used to it but now it makes sense to me to Mm. be in a bound volume and there's something about um even even the, the sequencing which I think originally hadn't been hadn't been um particularly sort of uh planned out I guess Mm. um even that now makes sense to me as well yeah it's kind of had the same experience like you make these decisions and later on you're like oh no that actually really works for for these reasons that are kind of unconscious reasons um but I do I want to I want to ask questions about the book specifically but I want to zoom out Mm. just for a second yeah Um, just to make sure that people have an understanding of the way that you work because you mentioned design Mm. and so I think it's important to say that like as a poet you are also a designer you've taught yourself how to use programs like InDesign and things like that to make poetry Um, how would you describe your work to someone who's never opened a book of yours? That's a really good question. Um, I suppose I would say that I work with text and image um, because why do I not say poetry specifically? I guess over over the years, um, I think I have, for me at least, as, as my cat is just sniffing the microphone. This is good. <laughs> i got to get a picture. <laughs> so I've, I've, I guess, yeah, for, for my... For the way I compose, I've come to make a distinction between poetry and, say, microfiction. Um, and this doesn't impact on the way the work is read and interpreted. I, I don't at all want to say you have to read this as one or the other. But my approach, my method for composition is very different. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's why I would say text rather than poetry specifically. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's... it often um is concerned with sequence um and with time and uh I don't know I suppose um with I have an interest I suppose in boundaries Mm. um both I guess pushing at them but maintaining them as well because I think that's where um productive things happen if, if you're open to something being both fixed and loose at the same time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess in this instance, it's broadly speaking boundaries between genres and forms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to... <laughs> Meg, please. <laughs> She's really going for that mic. Yeah, she wants it. I, I wonder if you'd agree with this characterization too. I feel like there is something really important happening in your work around absence or the lack of things pointing to something that's not there Mm -hmm. and and lost lake opens with the lines the absence a of the witch cannot does not invalidate a the spell Mm -hmm. um so there's a few absences even in that little passage but it is it's you open with this idea of absence, mm. open the whole book with that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've, that that was something that jumped out to me is that you've got this ability through the text and in the collage as well mm. 
because there are things taken out of images and added to other images to mm-hmm. highlight absence as much as creating connections and looking at those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like there's something really, really important in that. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll figure out what it is as we talk. Yeah. But yeah, that seems really significant to me. I, yeah, I, and I, I was thinking about this actually in relation to your work because, um, you know, the, the empty show and blanks, I mean, immediately in those titles, you're, you're signaling absence. Um, and those great photographs you have of the um, the, the lost posters. Um, and there, there's a line actually in the very first poem in The Empty Show, which I'm just going to grab because I've forgotten it. Um, but I think it really struck me. Oh, yeah. So all poems ignore the longing in them. And I think, yeah, I think in a way... Poetry can be this site of, of longing, right? Which is always, and longing always entails some kind of absence, right? Mm. A missing, um, something that should be there or is is desired but is, is not actually there. Mm. And I think we all have different ways of conceptualizing what it is that that is uh, not filling that space and that poetry is sort of a way to move towards even though you don't ever kind of reach it Mm. um and and i think the that that emptying and the um holding of that space as a space that's open rather than closed and filled is really important yeah yeah there are poems that do close things off and round the edges and i feel like those are really often really important to people and you know really useful but yeah poetry can also do the opposite and the collage as well like I feel so close to when I opened this book when I opened Lost Lake I was like it was like you'd seen into my mind (laughs) (laughs) I've tried to make collages that look so similar Mm. um, and just never really done anything with them and never would have conceptualized them as poems Mm. but we seem to be attracted to exactly the same type of old books. Yeah. Um, this is just a random aside, but how do you find the, your stash of books to cut up and work with? Um, op shops, yeah. secondhand bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anytime I'm in an op shop, I always head straight for the book section. Yeah. Um, anytime I'm traveling as well, mm-hmm. because there's some incredible um, secondhand books, obviously, that you wouldn't find in Australia. Mm. Um, which is kind of annoying when you have like luggage limits. Yeah. Um, and I, I have posted, I, like when I was in Canada a couple of years ago, um, I think it was a couple of years ago. It's like last year was just this big gaping hole, but, um, I visited the national library in Ottawa. Um, I was doing a bit of research there in in the archives and I was, um, walked through the lobby one day and I saw this little sign that said book sale mm-hmm. and I'm like you really just you shouldn't do it because you, you like you don't have space but of course I went and yeah, yeah. and I picked up these two like beautiful big um books and they were like together I think they cost five dollars but because I didn't have any space I had to post them home mm-hmm. and the postage cost like a hundred dollars mm-hmm. or something ridiculous mm-hmm. so that's um yeah, so it's it's financially not 
a good idea sometimes <laughs> um yeah. and and space as well like um but you know we're sitting in this room that has lots of boxes and there are boxes and books just everywhere um and a lot of those are yeah collage material um that i've either i ha- either have used or um i'm just yeah intrigued by the images and yeah. think one day i'll find a use for them yeah completely and i don't know if you find this as well but sometimes there's an entire book like an a4 hardbound book and there's only one thing in the book that you want but you just have to have it because it's not it's not like you can find these things by googling them like you just have to come across Mm. the image and then to and then find that juxtaposition yeah um which is yeah even more fun yeah Mm. and and i find that um so i i really work well to constraints Mm -hmm. because really you could just make anything and it's it's the 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 possibilities are are limitless um so when i have a theme um in particular Mm -hmm. that really helps because then i will choose source material based on that theme um and so yeah that way i'm limited to to only two books that Mm -hmm. i can draw images from and, and combine or um two or three so yeah it's it's or that tends to be the way I, I start is with some kind of theme and it's usually an externally um, for, for shorter pieces it's externally imposed externally imposed but um, for books I guess I guess the, the theme whatever it is um, or themes tend to arise from the the bringing together of, of smaller pieces but yeah I mean th- this question that just increasingly interests me um, of the relationship between parts and wholes um, is yeah really something that's highlighted in the process of making a book and this is, I felt the same way about the thesis because there's mm. a certain point like well I think most people work in different documents right for word documents for each chapter but there's a point um, where you sit down with your supervisors and they're like okay I think it's time you'd emerge them all into one document yeah, it's a big day <laughs> it's a big day and and the minute you do it you're like oh okay so there's a lot of work still to do because mm. now i see it all together and this has to change because it's now speaking to this other part mm. of the thesis and as a whole what is it all saying together um and so that is just a whole other phase mm. um and i find that yeah it's i mean again lost lake was was slightly different but um and argosy was different again because it was really two books in one um that were kind of intended to be counterweights in many ways Mm -hmm. but um not together sort of necessarily cohesive whereas this third book is i wanted it to be entirely sort of one um world and so there was a lot that i had done over the last three years that when I put everything together in a mock-up um just didn't work mm. and so I had to discard quite a lot and then what I did have needed developing um needed more linking and yeah that that was the really difficult work I think mm. Mm. you said um when we were chatting that that book is now 
complete? Like, is it with a publisher now? Or? Um, it's a, it's like almost with the printer. Oh, wow. Yeah. What an exciting point. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it took, um, I mean, I was working on it like a crazy thing over the summer mm. and, um, and um, had been, you know, like the pieces had been gathered over the last three years or so. But, yeah, I really, I um, and particularly once I got this job and I knew I was starting soon, yeah. and I just like I really have to finish this before I start. I, I'm almost there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a week's crossover, but um, there yeah, there was also a funding deadline we had to meet, mm-hmm. and so, and and I also had kind of had to do things a little bit backwards because um, we're printing with a an offset printer in Thailand, which is amazing. Um, I feel really lucky that that's the case, but to meet the deadline, um, I had to get the color proofing work done before I'd finished the book. Oh, okay. Which is very... That is quite weird. Yeah, yeah. and so I was sort of very anxious while I was doing working on the images and a bit of the design because, yeah, I, I didn't have like a whole book mm. in my mind or in reality yet. Um, and there were lots of moments where I really just felt like I just wouldn't be able to get it together. And I, I didn't want to make something that was splotchy and yeah. that I wasn't happy with. Yeah. Um, and so I very nearly pulled the plug a few times. <laughs> um, I haven't told my publisher this, but um, anyway, it, it kind of ha- has worked out in the end. I hope I'm, I'm still too stuck in it to really have a good sense of, of whether it works or not I, I think it does but yeah I, I, I don't know for sure yeah. um so talk um, about like a constraint though like the printer's deadline is my constraint they, yeah. need, they need the color proofs like yeah <laughs> yeah wow yeah um so yeah it's such an interesting moment to be talking to you I I want to bring in this idea that I I found in a piece that you wrote for the Suburban Review Mm. um so I'm going to quote you back to yourself okay great (laughs) you wrote that that there are times when I want to give up on the genre poetry Mm. but I feel I keep leaving only to loop back I like how in poetry you're always asking these questions questions about what it is exactly you are doing and why it should be called poetry and whether you still want to do it and how every time you write you are trying in some way to answer even if only provisionally. Mm. Um, and you mentioned, you know, a couple of times wanting to pull the plug on the book. Yes. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I guess the question there is, the obvious question is, like, does poetry still hold, does, do you still have a tether to it? Mm. But more broadly, I'm thinking about the way that Lost Lake functions and Arcazi functions as well, like, as these pushing beyond that boundary of poetry and going, well, what about this? Mm. That's just a bit outside, Mm. which seems just a really free way of approaching this stuff. Mm. I feel like that's a a really extreme end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum you've got, like, I always think about Clive James saying in an interview, like, I just want to write the perfect poem before I die yeah that's that's the other thing it's just like i got got to keep working on this one sonnet yeah um so yeah we're now that you're at this point the books at the printers like how do you feel about poetry as a thing um i think i'll always 
uh, we were talking earlier about sort of the uni being a home and I, and I feel like um, poetry will always be some kind of home mm. um, in, in a sense. I think the first thing I ever wrote when I was um, very young was a poem. Mm. Um, and since then I've kind of, I guess, I mean, I actually, for my thesis, I was supposed to write poetry, but I was running out of time and I mm. had to produce a large volume of words. And so I ended up writing short fiction mm. because, you know, you use conjunctions and prepositions and articles <laughs> and they fill up word count. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and I actually, like, and, and because I, I haven't written fiction really for, um, I mean, I did a little bit in high school, but it was very very I'm sure quite mediocre and I haven't I don't tend to show people um my written work with with visual stuff I I you know Robert unfortunately has um the privilege of being asked like several times a day do you like this one or this one (laughs) like this color or this color um also Robert's a kind of creative director yes yes very (laughs) much so Um, but yeah, with written work, I don't, I don't tend to show people. And so the only people who'd seen that work are my, uh, supervisors and my examiners. Mm. But I suppose poetry seems to be more elastic as a genre, mm. um, more permissive and historically, you know, there have been lots of incredible innovators, um, who work nominally in, in poetry as a genre. Mm. And so I think for work that doesn't necessarily easily fit into any other category poetry becomes this really lovely inclusive um term for whatever it is you're doing and yeah so and and i go through periods of reading lots of poetry and then not reading poetry at all um so maybe it might just be a function of my personality that i tend to go from one extreme to another Mm. um and I think also poetry, and the, the reason why earlier I was saying I make a distinction between poetry and microfiction is that if I'm writing what I consider to be microfiction, it really is just me sitting down at a desk and just whatever comes out, mm-hmm. um, and then I edit. But with poetry, often, um, and this is really for it to be interesting to me, um, it may not be interesting to, to readers, but um, it has to connect with other works mm-hmm. um it has to be in dialogue with the world around me and around it and um yeah make connections and and open out onto other other times and places and, and works mm-hmm. um i really see the poetic work as being part of that network mm-hmm. um of, of art that exists already i was going to dive into that because I feel exactly the same way and Mm. actually people have described people said to me over the last year like oh it's not really surprised that you're not writing because your work is so in dialogue with the world Mm. I was like oh okay Mm. but um I feel like there's something about there's there's an ethical concern here that might sound like a weird word to use Mm. but there are many many poets who just create new work of their own from their brain mm. and that's that's a thing mm. and then, then there's um and then there is the the choice to use what already exists mm. and lost lake uses an, just an incredible range of source material including 
one of the only horror movies I've ever sat through, The Witch. Oh, yeah, yeah. A New England Folktale. Oh, my God, don't watch that movie. Um, But, (laughs) yeah. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good, but also, yikes. Um, Yeah, the, the... the honouring of what's already there, using what's already there. Mm. Does is there an ethical dimension to that for you, or is that just something I'm imposing? Um, maybe I I don't think of it as as ethics necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting that you mentioned the witch because it's Robert Eggers, I think, is the director. Yeah, yeah. Um, for the script, he actually took a lot of the dialogue from um, I think. New England witch trials and yeah that comes up at the end it's like this sounded really weird but they used to really speak like this like this is all real stuff yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so like quoting his dialogue Mm. that already quotes yeah other source text yeah um yeah I, I think I think it's it's a consequence of just reading a lot and I think mm. if you read the more you read the more you see how these connections exist in in works that you know um that exist mm. <laughs> that mm. was a very convoluted circular sentence but um, <laughs> that seems appropriate <laughs> yeah yeah and um and I, I I love that every time I come across something that references something else or that um you know, does take from other source material and brings it into new new relation with new parts from yeah. either other texts or from um, you know something that, that the author themselves have written. To me, that affirms a certain um, continuity uh, and and community. Mm, um, you mm. know, there's a community of of art, like the works themselves form a community as well. Yeah. And totally. human culture is, you know, it's it's all communal, it's all collective. And I think this idea that we all exist in little creative bubbles um and don't ever uh you know take inspiration from other sources or yeah, I don't I don't know, I find that there's an interesting way of thinking about um, the concept of originality when it comes to making art and people are perfectly happy with um, you know if, if a writer overhears a conversation and puts that dialogue into their work um, versus someone who takes a bit of dialogue from a written text mm. and puts it into their work there's sort of a different way of looking at, at both of those practices um and in reality it's it's all about the way in which you synthesize yeah what you're experiencing and your experience of course is is not just you you know it's you getting up in the morning having breakfast walking your dog but it's also all of the artworks that you encounter mm. um, and that leave an impression on you in some way mm. Yeah, and you know, so like watching a Quentin Tarantino film, for instance, and um, you know, I, I I I'm not enough of a film buff to know, but you know, there are people who go through every scene, every shot, and they're like, this serial packet refers to this like scene from yeah, this film. Seriously, and... people who can do that, I'm just like, are you? Are we watching the same film? Yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. But I I love that. I think it's a, it's a yeah. kind of it's like a. It's a fan's approach to literature, I think. It's like that's important. Yeah. Mm. I love that. I love what you said about existing in in our own creative bubbles. I feel like there is a maybe a sense of like if 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 I can stay inside my bubble and make something great then it is truly great. Mm. But if I have to borrow from your bubble then it doesn't count. Mm. Um 
Yeah, there's also something else you said in an interview with um, Robert Wood. Uh, you said, in some ways, poetry shares more in common with other genres of art than it does with genres of writing. Mm. And you talk about working with text as texture, mm. which I feel like, yeah, we're sort of getting into here, like this idea that it is poetry's about synthesis sometimes, mm. not always, mm. but synthesis creating meaning mm. and a movie can also do that it can also be very linear and straight and like a to b and mm. this is what happened mm. but sometimes it just can be a collection of shots and then that's what i love about lost lake particularly the title poem which is a collection of really incredible images of just this fantastical looking lake which which is real yeah. Is a real yes. lake? <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't even necessarily look real. It looks like it's inhabited by fairies or something. But, like, <laughs> but I'm allowed to do whatever I want in a way. Like mm. you haven't given me, you've given me a title and a set of pictures mm. and I'm allowed to make any inference I would like. Yes. That's yeah. very freeing. Yeah, and mm. I'm really glad that, that you feel that, that it's freeing and that it doesn't... Um, I, I guess I, I hope that it doesn't provoke anxiety because that there's a single right way to read those images together. To I think 10 years ago I would have been freaked out. Yeah. I would have been like, I don't know what to do! <laughs> <laughs> it would have scared me, but like in a cool way, mm. you know, in an exciting way that would have pushed me. Like there is there are artworks I still remember seeing. Like I, I interviewed this person... Um, for Art Monthly ages and ages ago yeah. and they had found these pictures on the side of the road and then just put them in frames and that was their art exhibition mm. and at the time I was like that's bullshit <laughs> that's so dumb yeah. like I can't believe you know but I always thought about it as like the extreme extreme end mm. of like found objects yeah but, you know like it's very challenging and that's super important. Yeah, and yeah. and like you know Patrick Pound for instance, his whole body of work is like finding photographs in op shops that don't you know belong to anyone really or, or maybe yeah, they right. do but they're, they're lost photographs. Right. I hadn't heard of him. That's Yeah, awesome. he's he's great, but yeah. like yeah, all of his exhibitions are just really well curated mm. collections of of these found photographs and there are lots of art books. Um like photo books that mm. are all found photographs that have just been sequenced and put in relation to each other. That's so cool. Um, in a particular way, yeah. And yeah. so, and I, I think in in the visual art world that, and and perhaps that's partly what I mean by by um, the answer to, to that interview question is, uh, yeah, in in visual arts that practice that um, the concept I guess mm. of of that being. Uh, a way to create art has been around for a, a long time and and I, I guess I mean it's been around in poetry as well mm. right with the center mm. form but mm. um, but yeah I find it interesting comparing the ways in which it's received um, yeah on the one hand by visual artists and on the other by by poets yeah um, yeah yeah I wanted to ask you about reception mm. and also about how you feel about community in terms of poetry here in Australia because I feel like a lot of a lot of the interviews that you've done in the reviews of your work 
they tend to sort of frame you as like oh here's Bella out here she's doing some amazing stuff guys like it's really different but you always bring people back to like well no I'm working in a tradition I'm working I'm part of a lineage this is actually not Mm. that different to what a lot of other people are doing but do you feel part do you are there poets working around you now that you feel in connection with uh, in terms of them doing similar... I guess so, yeah. Just like, even if it wouldn't look similar to a reader necessarily, like mm. people that you're like, oh, we're doing the same thing, mm. you know, and I feel supported by the fact that you're doing that and I'm over here doing this. Yeah, yeah. So there are, um, in terms of, I guess, sort of textual collage, there's, you know, Toby Fitch, um, Kate Middleton, um, and uh, Pascal Burton is... is really awesome poet from Brisbane who I met um, at I think the first conference I ever presented at when mm-hmm. I was doing my PhD mm-hmm. and um, and she's incredible she she does this sort of stuff to it like a really incredible degree and she uses um, really interesting constraints uh, and she works across different media as well so she does um, you know, visual art collages she does video work she's also a musician um, and she writes as well. So, yeah, she she's incredible. Um, and, yeah, I think there are lots of people working at that intersection. Mm. Um, and then, then, of course, there are visual artists who work with text a lot. Mm. And the interesting thing I found that w- was when I went to this residency in Finland um, that the theme was text and image. And I was expecting to um, meet a lot of writers who were working with images, but most of the people there would consider themselves visual artists mm. who work with text and um yeah right you know mm-hmm. so and so actually the the other thing is that recently um i, I did this ekphrastic piece uh which was responding to this work by um, another amazing brisbane artist uh sandra selig mm-hmm. and she works a lot i think with found images um and she was collaborating with a musician for this particular piece but yeah, so, so I think once you, again, I guess, look at that boundary that's sort of nominally put down and look through it to the other side, there's like so many people who are practicing mm. um, and have historically practiced at that intersection. And um, it just sort of expands the, the possibilities and that sense of community, I suppose, mm. to, to people nominally working in different genres but concerned with similar um yeah similar ideas and practices Mm. yeah yeah Yeah, I guess I just wanted to highlight that because it seemed like a through line in in what had been I guess the way that you had your work had been framed Mm. and I I guess I just wanted to be like well yeah it might not be quite that simple yeah um yeah I'm really I'm really pleased to um you've picked up on that as well because it's important to me that that's recognized as well cool Yeah, that's cool. Uh, another thread I wanted to pick up on from an interview you did with Liminal. Mm. Um, this is right at the end of the interview. This is kind of how the interview ends. He said, at the moment I'm thinking a lot about gender. Mm. The treatment of women as objects, possessions and second-class citizens cuts across many cultures. Mm. And that w- interview probably is around the time you are writing Lost Lake. Maybe? I think it was after. Afterwards, okay, yeah. right. Mm. Um, just, yeah, I guess I mentioned that because there is a particular sequence in here called Curiosities, which um, seems to deal fairly directly with ideas of femininity, mm. domesticity, kinds of... My favourite is this 
image here I'll try to describe, which is women look like they're um, two women that look like they are doing a bit of an Avon commercial for <laughs> nail polish, but their heads are just like black and white images of a beehive, bees in a beehive. It's really striking. I'll put it up with the description of the episode, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that that was definitely, so those, um, the background images for those collages were from old um, issues of Women's Day from the 60s. Which is the best. It, it's, it's the best source material. It's so good, but it's <laughs> yeah. also, and that's why um, partly what made me think of The Witch as well, because it's also horrific, because yeah. you look through these magazines and you're like this is the range of interest that a woman was allowed to have so and it's they're so recent like they're they're, you know 50 years old or something and it's like best ways to calm your baby from colic i don't know like i can't think of a good example but like like how to make the perfect um meal for your husband who's just come home from a hard day's work yeah it's just so i mean i'm sure magazines now are only slightly less constricting but Mm. it seems very obvious from a 50-year vantage point yeah yeah Mm. and so it'd be interesting to look back at what's being produced now and actually probably the difference yeah as you say it's really not that big um yeah and and i think the opening um which you read earlier of that poem is this epigraph from emily dickinson um and that yeah, I mean, she she was such a, an, an important and incredible figure in poetry, but really has only been um, rediscovered, I suppose, and championed, particularly her, um, like, the, the way in which she worked visually as well, um, relatively recently. What do you mean by that? Because I, I have a theory as to what you're getting at, but what do you mean by visually? Um, so, you know, for ages, the, the standard sort of Emily Dickinson editions were the ones that had been regularised. Yeah. So, you know, all the all the dashes and, I mean, I think they'd kept some dashes, but, um, you know, and formatted so that they look like what we would consider poetry, sort of in mm. lines and, and mm. regular stanzas. But, um, you know, if you look at her work as it was written and... Um, these uh, the the originals are now being um, digitized mm. and, and made available online. You see how you know she kept the variations in right. So the and ah, uh, she would have though you know as as is reproduced as, as best I can um, in Lost Lake at the in the epigraph. They're uh, presented as alternatives in the same line, oh. and they're not crossed out. I mean, there are times when she crosses out. Um, what she doesn't intend to, to mm. make it in you know these haven't been crossed out and so you know in terms of the possibilities the way in which you read her poetry it completely expands the possibilities and changes um, the way yeah the, the way she's read and interpreted mm. um, and you know and she only published a few poems in her lifetime and, and I and um, the vast bulk of her work, you know, exists as it was written in in this, um, you know, handwritten form, mm. um, and on the backs of envelopes, mm. and um, yeah. So, so her, I guess, her, I guess maybe what I'm getting at is, um, I would consider her to be part of this visual poetry tradition or this tradition of poetry that works with visual form as well, because I think she was very alive to it in her work. 
That's so cool. I've never thought about it like that. I didn't know that about the articles, some being crossed out and some not. But when when I was studying Emily Dickinson, my teacher would just go on and on and on about the dashes and like they're so important, they're so important. Yeah. And yeah. And and, and not just dashes, but pl- like plus like what 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 look like plus symbols. Right. Right. So right. She had a whole sort of lexicon of her own mm-hmm. um, in terms of grammatical marks. Um, and yeah, and the the alternative words were all sorts of words. They weren't just articles. It was mm. like, yeah. So it's um, it's really fascinating looking at, at her archive because mm. it's a very different beast to what um, has been presented as her work over mm. the years. And um, Susan Howe, who's who's um, one of the poets I wrote about in my in my thesis, and who's been a huge influence. Um, has really, I think, championed that that approach, reapproach, I guess, towards mm. um, Emily Dickinson's work. And yeah. yeah, I just wonder how many other, you know, poets in general, probably female poets in particular, whose work we will get to reappraise, like with some time. Yeah, a lot of women's weeklies. Yeah, I. I've only recently discovered someone who actually has been around for a little while, um, but I discovered her through uh, teaching a modernism course with Justin last year. Mm. Um, and she, she wasn't on the syllabus, but she was mentioned in an article, and I immediately was like, who is this person? I have to look her up. And it's um, this poet, Teresa uh, Hak-kyung Cha, mm-hmm. who's a Korean-American poet. And um, speaking of, you know... Uh, feminism and and um the mistreatment of of women it's it's a particularly sort of horrific story i I googled her and and the first thing you find out is that she um she was murdered Mm. um i think seven days after her book came out she was very young and anyways it's um I, i don't want to focus on that but i just i spent like maybe half an hour after that just feeling very angry and sad Mm, mm. but her work um and so the book that i'm speaking about is called dictate and um it's uh it's an incredible work and it delves into history and mythology and she uh yeah immigrated from korea to America I think she studied film and literature um, and then she studied in Paris for a little while as well and came back and so um, the book is this mix of different languages she's got mm. French she's got English um, and photographs uh, because she she looks at um, in part at the Japanese occupation of Korea right. um, and there's been a book recently that's been published by Don Mi Choi the another Korean-American poet um, called DMZ Colony or DMZ Colony which also looks at, at the occupation um, and and uh, in in the book, I think in the credits um, John Mee Choi acknowledges that I think the influence of, of Cha anyway, so it, I mean that's the thing, like you're constantly going back and rediscovering mm. um, and, and I, I'm hoping that because I think Don Choi's book recently won the National Book Award or something. Oh, okay. Um, but that will, you know, lead people back to Cha as well. Yeah. Um, and I also discovered recently this great uh, Japanese-Canadian poet, Roy Kinukuya. 
I think his surname is um, anyway and he uh, there's this great work of his I found in an anthology edited by Michael Rondage um, and he he does like collage and 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 I think textual collage as well um, in a really fascinating way so mm. yeah it's it, I think it's great because you yeah as I say I suppose you you kind of discover text through other texts yeah and you know in this process you know you ricochet back and forwards and through time and discover um you know new people as, as you go yeah 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 I used to feel a lot of anxiety around there are just so many books I mean we we're glancing across at your bookshelf as you're saying all these things yeah <laughs> um there's probably two up there that I can see that I would have opened mm. but that used to really fill me with just a huge crushing kind of like well I have to read them all I have mm. to I have to know all these things but like I've realized more recently that like it's actually I guess like a like a patchwork collaging type of process where I get to bounce between people mm. and make my own kind of body of knowledge mm. and I, I think that way I'm so much easier on myself around film because mm. like you know there's all those dumb like hundred um thousand one films you have to see before you die yes, you know yes. and, I'm, and that just seems like patently silly to me yeah. and I feel really <laughs> really comfortable just being like no I'm just gonna watch the films I would like to see yeah and then you know maybe you know I watched Lawrence of Arabia because I felt like I, that was one of the ones I was like yeah I guess I gotta watch this yeah um <laughs> it's actually not so bad but yeah like with books like you've got the collected John Forbes up there I've still never picked that up mm. and I know that he's connected to just like everyone in some way mm. um but I you know I say I haven't picked it up I have picked it up mm. I haven't enjoyed what I've read and I put it back down. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's okay. lots of those books that I've started and then put down mm. and either not returned to or returned to at a different point and being like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's, or or yeah. it's okay but not amazing. Mm. Or, but you can see maybe because you've gone off and read something else, you're like, oh, okay, I actually know how to approach this a bit better now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, and mm. I really think about... Um, Calvino has this great essay on um, the classics and mm. I think it's called Why Read the Classics or something and he talks about different ways to conceptualize a classic and um, and also like the the time at which you read it being mm. significant um, yeah. and I think that's true of all books right is that absolutely there are times when you're more receptive to them than others and yeah. I mean when I was studying literature I suppose like I, I had to read certain books because they were on the course mm. um and it did take me a while I think as well to shake this sense that I have to make my way through all the classics mm. um I tend to prefer classics in in literature at least be, uh in prose because often they are more reliable like oh I, mm. there are few, I mean on the road I absolutely detested but yeah, apart I couldn't from, get through that apparently uh, it's the most abandoned book is it yeah oh that's really interesting mm. I would have thought it would have been like Ulysses or something, which I did abandon. <laughs> Probably also that. <laughs> yeah, not counting Ulysses on the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the only reason I actually had to go back and finish it was because I was teaching it last year. Oh. Ulysses. And I, and I actually did enjoy it in the end. But um, mm. 
Yeah, but, but the, the, that sense that, and maybe with film, you can kind of quantify, you can be like a thousand and one films is like how many hours and that's yes. just not possible. Yes. Whereas books, because they're not necessarily quantifiable in terms of how long it will take you, mm. um, it's harder to be like, oh, well, I definitely won't. But, but of course you won't get through them. So it's like, yeah, I suppose I, I'm all like... Sometimes I feel anxiety and other times I feel incredibly freed because... Mm. It's just not possible. It's not possible. Yeah. And you you only live for a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and what do you want to fill that time with? Yeah. Um, it's books that... Yeah, I think that's the whole point of art is finding things that speak to you in some way um, that, that you can derive knowledge and joy and pleasure from mm. um, and... Yeah, otherwise there's kind of no no point to it. It's it's a, it's a very particular like, um, yeah, kind of uh, experience that you're having through through a work of art in in whatever form it is. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's there to be enjoyed. Yeah. I'm just glancing over at my clock every now and again and going, well, fifteen more minutes have passed. But um, before we wrap up, is mm. there anything? else that's been on your mind over the last couple of months or is on your mind right now poetry wise or otherwise that you want to talk about uh <laughs> open question very open question um nothing pressing i suppose my brain has just been emptied um with this book and part of what i'm looking forward to once it's like finally off to the printer is being able to fill that space up again yeah you know yeah. it's just like I, I kind of I have to be focused on this thing in order to finish it and get it out um but that's yeah that that's why it's why i love books i mean book making because there's that end point mm. and that i guess allows you to you know sort of approach the world anew again mm. um and yeah so i think i'm looking forward to that um but at the moment yeah, my, my brain is pretty like, <laughs> emptied pretty out. Emptied out. <laughs> it sounds like you do really, I mean, I read you describing the process of putting Argosy together and just, you know, going to office works and spending hours and hours checking and stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I did. I mean, I feel like I brought you here for no reason if I don't show you this, this stuff. But um, this is like the test prints. Um, that I did for this one. Oh wow! And they're all. Thank you. Yeah, you can. I'm picking them. up just a, a huge pile of A5 one. pages printed yeah. in color. The theory theory of colors. Yes. Um, is the book's title. And so I keep wow. everything. This up feels until. very like privileged to just get to look through <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I keep Amazing. I keep everything until um, until basically the books come in and then right. I get rid of like whatever's right. unnecessary. But like the the cover was the last thing I did, and that took like um, I don't know if you want to flip through, but like ninety something, I think a hundred different versions before wow. I came, and I was I was really in despair this time last week because. I hadn't found something that I really loved and a cover doesn't make a book better than it is but it, it's you know it's the it case. It can make it worse though. It, it can okay. it can yeah. and so I was just sort of despairing and the same thing happened with Lost Lake I just was like the cover almost 
killed me at the end or broke me at the end. Um, you, you're doing your own book design. That's the crazy thing. That I, I, as you're talking about it, it just sort of sounds like, oh, this is a normal thing, but nobody else works. Nobody else does that. Yeah, yeah. and it's partly because I'm a control... I mean, it's all because I'm a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't stand to, like, have like no control over it but um but I I was speaking to a friend in the middle of this like well of despair and he was like actually it's it's like a privilege to be able to hand it off to someone else to be like you deal with this like I've done this and you figure out how to like Mm. package it um that's why you go with a publishing house and and I'm like yeah I suppose it is it's like an agony that you you kind of are able to pass off to somebody else but I think I mean, I think I still prefer the agony mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, I mean, yeah, I, I just do. I think I prefer agony on all sorts of fronts. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the trade-off is like letting go of a creative vision that you've you've poured everything into. Like the sense I get from reading your book, reading your works and... Um, interviews with you is that there are no half measures here everything you have is in this work Mm. so I can imagine handing that off to someone else would be quite quite weird yeah 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 Yeah, that's it that's it in a nutshell